Today we're going to finish up 2 Thessalonians by uh, completing chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 16 through 18. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. These are Paul's final words in this letter that he wrote to the church in Thessalonica, and I just want to talk about three things in these verses. One is the Lord's peace, Secondly, the Lord's presence. And third, the Lord's grace. Let's pray. Father, again, I thank you that you have given us the Holy Scriptures, both old and new. That you have given us the Holy Spirit to enlighten us. You've given us intelligence and reason to be able to read and understand and ponder and consider Speak to us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What I want to talk about today, I'm assuming you all pretty much know, so this would be more as a reminder or just a refresher or whatever, but I do want to talk about the Lord's peace, the Lord's presence, and the Lord's grace. Whether you see verse 16, and verse 16 says, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance or in every way. So whether you see this verse as a prayer or a statement of blessing, it really makes no difference. You can see it either way. But it reminds us that God is the source of peace. God is the Lord of peace, the master of peace, the ruler of peace, and he's the giver of peace. We are simply the privileged recipients of peace. However, we know from other scriptures that we, though we are just the recipients of God's peace, we must do certain things to both receive this peace and to live in a state or a condition or a mindset or a heart of peace. For example, we must believe in God. You can't have this peace from God without believing in God. And you must live accordingly, according to faith in God. You can't distrust God and have his peace within you. It doesn't work. Distrust of God leads us to anxiety, to fear, to turmoil, to discontent, to those things that rob us of peace. We must rely on his goodness, his faithfulness, his provision and protection. And when I say rely on, I mean, you know, that takes some patience, some waiting, some enduring. But we have to if we're going to have his peace. And we must say no to anxiety. We have to say no to it. I think one of the things that was helpful to me early on was to learn that I can't always control what comes into my mind, 
But once it's there, and I'm aware that it's there, I can decide what I'm going to do with it. So I can say no to anxiety. That we are told by the word of God. Not only are we to say no to anxiety, and I'm sure these next words you'll recognize is from Philippians. We are to tell God our troubles. There's nothing wrong with feeling troubled. There's nothing wrong with thinking that some bad things are about to happen. But rather than going into anxiety and fear and projecting doom, go to God and tell him, you know, this is the problem. Here's what's happening. Here's how I see it. I need your help. But we also need to be grateful for the good we have. We do not deal with anxiety apart from having a grateful, thankful heart. Anxiety, projecting doom, seeing the worst, thinking the worst is going to happen. It's all about a narrow focus. Gratitude broadens that focus out and helps us see the broader, bigger picture. And then we need to patiently wait for God to work everything out for good. But in addition to those things, we know from Jesus' words and life's experiences that the continuous and undisturbed peace we get from God can only be experienced inside of us. And the reason for that is that the peace that exists in the world comes and goes with changing circumstances and it's easily disrupted by fickle and erratic people. Paul talked about steadfastness. We live in a world that can change in a moment. We have no idea what Russia is going to do with Ukraine, but my guess is there's a lot of anxiety there. And that can change in a moment, and it can go bad in a moment, it can turn out good in a moment. So the peace that we have from God is inside of us. Way back in Numbers chapter 6 verses 22 to 27 God confirmed that he is the source of every good and perfect gift and that included peace. He's the source of peace. In those verses God gave Aaron and his sons words that they were to speak over the Israelites. They were to pray this prayer as if praying it over the Israelites, and it was a prayer that was to gain God's blessings for them. And these are words that you might have heard in church. I grew up hearing these words almost every Sunday at the end of the Sunday service. And here's what the Lord told Aaron and his sons to say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. If you can see God's face, you should be in good shape. That's a wonderful thing. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. In other words, the Lord, may the Lord have a very positive, encouraging, cheerful, happy countenance towards you and not one that's dour or glum or angry or what have you. Lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. These were Israelites. They were headed towards the promised land, and the promised land was going to be a challenge for them. They had to fight for quite a while to clean it out. 
I bet they had to leave the women and children for maybe a day, a week, whatever it took to handle the next war that they had to fight. Give you peace, he said. Did they have peace? Well, they were working towards peace, but they could have peace inside. Jesus affirmed that true peace has a divine source in John chapter 14, verse 27. And here's what Jesus said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. That is not in the same way as the world gives you peace do I give to you. And we'll talk about the difference in that in a few moments. So I do know that you know this yet. I do want to remind you that the Word of God tells us that we, yes, we receive this peace from God, but we also must take appropriate action if we are going to experience God's peace. Just to give you some scriptures regarding that, John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says, Do not let, do not allow your heart to be troubled. That's something you have to do. You have to turn away from a troubled heart. You have to calm it down. You have to drive away the anxiety or the fears that are coming in and upon you. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, we know these words, be anxious for nothing. How many things should we let anxiety in for? Absolutely none, he says. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And when you fulfill the requirements of verse 6, then the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What are the requirements of verse 6? Be anxious for nothing. Tell God your problems. Be thankful for all the good that you do have. Colossians 3.15 God says to let or allow the peace of Christ to rule in your hearts. You have to let it. It wants to, but you have to let it. In other words, you have to say no to the things that stop the peace from being there. You have to reject the kind of thinking and the fears and the projecting of doom that wants to come in upon you so that that peace can dwell there. I don't know if you've wrestled with getting control of your mind, but it took me a while It was very easy for me when things would go really bad or someone would mistreat me and I'd be upset about it. My mind could just go over and over again how I should deal with that or what I should say to that person. or And it was always, you know, it would turn out in my favor and they would feel bad for being such jerks. Yeah, what is that? I was letting my mind deter the peace of God from dwelling there. Just by reflecting over and over and working that over and over in my head. You might feel like it's impossible to stop that, but it is not. It will take work, but you can gain control. I'm going to add in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, because this gives us a really clear uh, contrast. The one side is flee from youthful lusts, run away from them. And the other side is pursue, run toward. So we run away from one, we run toward the other. What are we to run toward? Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. 
peace. We're to run toward peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. John Owen, a 16th century Puritan, put it this way. These are good words, in my opinion. And you could only write these words if you'd experienced them, otherwise they would never come to mind. See to it that your faith brings forth obedience. Do you see the prerequisite? See to it that your faith brings forth obedience, and God in due time will cause it to bring forth inward, unshakable peace. That is true. You may not be experiencing it yet, but if you will live this statement out, if you will live out the scriptures that I just read to you, you'll wake up one morning and realize you have that inward, unshakable peace. That's a marvelous place to live. So the point of these scriptures is that we do not, we do not have to allow anxiety and fear to rule over our hearts and minds. We can choose a different path. We can make a different choice. We can go a different way. For example, we can choose to trust God instead of distrusting him. We can say no when distrust comes in. Read the Psalms. One of the things about the Psalms that I think is so marvelous is they give us a practical picture of the struggle of the human mind and heart and emotions with real life. But one of the great things about the Psalms beyond that is that it gives us a reminder that though David had these struggles, he always held to the fact that God was good and he was going to trust God and God was worthy of that trust. God would work it out. So the struggles, yeah, they come. That's the real part of life. One day you may be generally free of that, and that's a wonderful place to be as well. But you can choose to trust God, just as David did in psalm after psalm after psalm, instead of distrusting him. We can choose to patiently wait for God to act. Relief doesn't have to come the next moment. I know it would be nice if it did. We'd all like that. We'd like life to change really quick. Things to get better really fast. But we can choose to patiently wait for God to act on our behalf instead of becoming impatient, fearful, projecting doom, thinking the worst is going to happen. And we can choose to remain obedient to God's will and word regardless of the circumstances instead of choosing ungodly means to deal with the person or situation that's threatening our peace. One of the things that I had to face in my own life was asking the question, am I disciplining my children because they're messing my life up or because this is for their good? It's just way too easy to try and get the house back in order for my sake rather than doing it for their sake. Uh, obedient to God's will and word. You know, he doesn't discipline us for his sake so he'll have a better life. He does it for our sake so that we can come into a better life. As for peace in the world or even the home, it can flip-flop like the weather. And Jesus pointed out the precariousness or lack of peace in the world when he said, in the world you have tribulation. He just points out, said it to his disciples, imagine these are the people he's going to send out 
in ministry. He had already sent them out. But he's going to send them out again, and he's not going to be there to protect them. And he says, hey, they're going to have tribulation. It's not a very peaceful, encouraging word. But he says, take courage, I have overcome the world. I think one of the sad things is, is that we have an insufficient amount. We have a lack of peace even in the church, in the body of Christ. And I've been in places of that nature. Where churches and individual Christians have allowed conflicts to fester unresolved for years. Church I grew up in, there was the three W's, and they were against the pastor. They never worked this out. In all the years that the pastor was there, those three gentlemen, they, they all had a last name that started with W. That's why they were known as the three W's. They just were in conflict with the pastor for all the years that they were there and he was there. Never worked it out. How do we do that? How is that godly? How is that right? But that is church life, sad to say. It's all too common for church life to include pride-driven conflicts. The last call that I received about a church in conflict was the youth worker thought he should be the pastor and that the pastor should be removed. I mean, what is this about? That's a pride-driven conflict. There's power struggles. There's damage and broken relationships that never get repaired. There's the splintering of churches into two or more separate groups. And these are people who would eat a meal together, worship together, gave together, and yet after they split, they have nothing to do with each other. That is really sad. We should want peace in our world. And yet the peace that comes from God is vastly different from the peace that the world is able to attain. I said we would get to that idea in a moment. Here's the moment. So just consider this. The world's peace is outward. God's peace is first and foremost inward. The world's peace manages what is going on around you. God's peace manages what is going on inside of you. These are the differences. The world's peace depends on removing or suppressing the outward reasons or causes for conflict or anger or anxiety or fear or revenge. God's peace depends on removing the inward reasons or causes for anxiety, anger, fear, and revenge. But God's peace goes even further because it replaces the things that it removes with trusting God's goodness and love and patience and joy and contentment. For the world's peace to prevail, human power and means are required. They're required to control people and the circumstances in which we live. You have to overpower that which wants to take away the peace. For God's peace to prevail, you must control yourself. You must submit to his power 
His ways of protecting you, His ways of providing for you, and His ways of bringing good out of whatever circumstances or people you face. The world's peace is fragile and often has a short lifespan. We make agreements as nations, and those agreements could last 20, 50, 75 years, or they could last a week. Many of them last just a short time, short lifespan. Why? Because the world's peace is dependent on humans in power to exert their power over others in order to keep the peace. Or it's dependent on the cooperation of everyone. And I mean everyone. And all it takes is just one or two or three to start disrupting the peace for the peace to be lost. In contrast, the power in God's peace is God himself. And he doesn't use it to control us. But if we will rest in that power his peace becomes like an anchor that can never be moved no matter how fierce the storm or how high the waves or how strong the winds because the power is God himself. So, last statement is God's peace is true peace. It lasts throughout eternity and it's the only peace that requires a power outside of you and yet dwells ever so powerfully inside of you. Moving on to the second half of verse 16, the Lord be with you all. Again, this is either a prayer or a statement of blessing, and uh, it should be a comforting one. However, once again, Paul wants this for the Thessalonians, but the word of God says that God is with his people. He already is with his people. For example, John 14, 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. God's already with you if you're keeping Christ's commandments and living as you ought. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He promised that to his disciples and that promise has been passed on to us. In Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus said, For two or three have gathered together in my name. I am there in your midst. So, God is with us. And yet, it is very comforting if you need that assurance. And there's nothing wrong with needing that assurance. I am not discrediting that. But there is something very comforting about being reminded or having someone pray that God's presence would be with you. And we should be willing to give that assurance, that comfort to the people around us. I don't get up in the morning thinking about, is God's presence going to be here? It is, and I've become convinced of that. For me, I don't need that reminder, but there are some of us that need it. And we ought to gladly give it because it is a comfort to be reminded that God is present. He is with us. Verse 17, just a couple words about that. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a distinguishing mark in every letter. He says, well, 
Not all of his letters that made it in the New Testament have this mark, but that's probably, he was, you know, thinking everyone that I can remember. Uh, and this is the way I write. So you probably already know this, but it was customary, especially in those days, to have a secretary, somebody who would write out by hand what you wanted to say in a letter. So, you know, maybe Paul would walk around thinking while he's talking. Maybe he was sitting in his chair. I don't know, but he's speaking out this letter and somebody's writing it down. That was pretty normal, not just in Christian circles, but in all of life. But to confirm the true author of the letter, the author would often write something in his own handwriting so that the readers would be assured of the authenticity of his letter. I suppose you couldn't always read the handwriting. One of the uh, fun things we had with my father was nobody could read his handwriting but him. So if he left the note around, you had to ask him what it meant. <laughs> he just couldn't read his handwriting. But that was a way to say... I'm the one really sending this letter. Now, Paul did the same thing in 1 Corinthians. He did it in his letter to the church in Galatia. He did it in Colossians, and he did it in Philemon. So the same method, the same process appears in those scriptures as well. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. We often use the word grace in relation to God's salvation, and we ought. For example, it's common for us to acknowledge that we are saved by grace. And we ought to acknowledge that. An example of saving grace is well stated by the hymn, Grace Greater Than I Sin. And I want to read just a couple words from that. A couple lines, actually. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Notice the words, marvelous loving Lord. It's not just grace, it's marvelous grace. Do you think about it that way? One of the things that believers down through the ages who have gained a certain level of humility and see themselves as they more nearly are, one of the things that's common amongst them is that they realize they genuinely don't deserve this grace, and it's marvelous that it's been given. It is just way too easy to think of ourselves as better than we are. I know that the world is against having a low view of yourself, and I'm not promoting an unrealistic, irrational, mentally uh, damaging view of yourself, but we are also weak on the other side. We have too high of a view of ourselves. Marvelous grace. It is a marvel that God would create us in the first place and then save us from ourselves so that we could have the original creation that we threw aside. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. I, I suppose we can all think of a neighbor whose God's grace exceeds their sin and guilt. Man, I mean, they're pretty bad, but, you know, I've not done evil things that some people in this world have done. They haven't even entered my mind to do them. But I am well aware that the evil I have committed is 
really bad. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within, freely bestowed on all who believe. That is saving grace. However, the word grace covers more of God's activities toward and for us than is represented by Christ's death. An example of the word grace being applied to its larger sense is found in the hymn, He Gives More Grace. And here again, I want to read the words we're all familiar with. We sing them on a regular basis. But as I read these words, keep in mind that each activity of God mentioned in this verse that I'm going to read is an act of God's grace. Each activity is an act of God's grace. He gives more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sends more strength, an act of God's grace. He sends more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundaries known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he gives and gives and gives again. Just the fact that he would give once is a grace. But that he gives and gives and gives again, that is God's grace. God's word gives us examples of God's grace in real life situations. And I want to just run through these scriptures uh, and I have a number of them, so stick with me here. In Acts chapter 4, verses 33 to 35, we read, we read these words, And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They weren't out just talking about it. It was God's power was going with them, and it was being expressed through them as they were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then he says... Luke, in in telling this part of the story, and abundant grace was on them all. Now we might think the grace was just for the evangelism effort. But notice what Luke says. For or because there was not a needy person among them. Abundant grace was on them all. This was grace to transform the thinking of these new believers so that they would sell their lands or houses or possessions and bring that money to the apostles so that everyone could have what they needed that was part of that church there in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 6 verse 8 And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Romans 12, 3-6 For through the grace given to me, Paul says... He received grace from God to be an apostle. We understand that the gifts are the result of God's grace. So Paul says, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. That's God's grace at work. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. So we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. 
And then he says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us. These gifts, these abilities that help the church function, that help the church fulfill its role and its responsibility, this is the result of God's grace within the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.10 By the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am. He wasn't looking for God, for Jesus, for salvation. He was a good Jew looking to stamp out Christianity. And yet, he was met on the road to Damascus by the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. He was taught by the grace of God. It was God that sent Ananias. It was God that brought along uh, Paul and... uh, Who's Paul's? Silas. Paul and Silas. Yeah, thanks. That brought along Silas. It was God that brought these other ones to Paul's work in order for Paul to do what he needed to do. By the grace of God, I am what I am. 2 Corinthians 9.8 God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good need. He's talking about your income. He's talking about your possessions. It is the grace of God that gives us what we have so that we can share with others who have need. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, And God has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Here's Paul. He's got a thorn in the flesh. He's suffering every day. He gets up every morning. It's the same suffering. All through the day. Maybe even when he sleeps. I don't know. But what did God say? My grace is sufficient to help you endure this situation. That's God's grace at work. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. You therefore my son be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The grace is strong. What was the role that Timothy was supposed to do? He was supposed to use that grace to its fullest. Be strong in that grace, Paul writes. And then he says, and here's what you need to do with that being strong in God's grace. What you've heard from me, you need to teach others. And you need to suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. I've given you the scripture many times, but it is a wonderful statement of God's grace. For the grace of God has appeared... It's shown up. It's come come into our presence. What? Bringing salvation to all men. That's one thing. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. That's the second thing that God's grace has shown up to do. And then, to look for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's the third thing. He brings to our attention, the grace of God brings to our attention the life that is to come and gives us the reason to hope in that and to look forward to it. Number four, he provided Jesus Christ to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession. And I would add number five, zealous for good deeds. Why would we be zealous for good deeds? That's the grace of God at work in our lives. Hebrews 4.16 Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that you may receive 
mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Need help? Call on God? That's God's grace that comes to your aid. And Hebrews 13.9 Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. What is the grace that strengthens? I don't know exactly. But I do know that it's the truth of God. It's found in the truth of God. It's gained through the truth of God. That much I do know. All right, so the whole point of this is to help us see that God's grace goes way beyond salvation. It's a marvelous gift, the grace of salvation. And I'm not wanting to diminish that at all. But let us be aware that God's grace is present in our lives for a whole variety of issues, needs, things. And I would encourage us to be strong in that grace. The grace itself is strong. I have to rest in it, rely on it, trust it, use it. Last thing I want to say is that Peter exhorts us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are exhorted to grow in this grace, get better at taking hold of it, get better at using it, get better at maybe even asking for it. But we need to grow in this grace. Paul closes his second letter with a prayer or blessing for these believers to experience God's peace in every situation, to be aware of God's presence day by day, and to experience the varied expressions and fullest possible measure of God's grace. And I want to close today and this study of Second Thessalonians by saying, may we have a similar desire for each other. May we want this for each other. And may we want this for our missionaries. And may we want this for the body of Christ at large.